Welcome to the Rise Network podcast show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Austin Ye, and Mayu is unable to join us today. Oh, no, there you are. (laughs) You missed me, eh? (laughs) Uh, Kind of, but uh, you're going to miss me the next two weeks because uh, I'm not going to be here in the preamble the next two weeks. Yeah. Where are you going again? Is it Italy and anything else or just Italy? Yeah, I'm just going to be out Italy for two weeks. So we're traveling across five different cities, two days in each city, two to three days in each city. So it's, it's going to be pretty rapid fire. Yeah. And as so. soon as I come back, Lillian has to go to a wedding and I have to go to a concert. So it's going to be, <laughs> gonna be fucking jam packed. <laughs> Unless you get COVID, eh? Unless no, I get COVID. Yeah, hopefully not. <laughs> fucking knock on wood. <laughs> All right, man. What's been going on? What's the update? Yeah, I guess uh, updates on both of our ends. Um, Earlier on, I don't even know which episode, we're talking about being expropriated by the CTC, the Canadian transit company who owns the bridge, the Ambassador Bridge from Windsor to Detroit. As you know, it's privately owned. And they're looking at building some sort of site, whether that be parking or some sort of welcome center. Initially, we were going through the process with them on trying to figure out a price and trying to negotiate it ourselves. But then we looped in a lawyer, which we found out from a lawyer that legally speaking, um, when we're getting expropriated, the company that's expropriating us, they have to pay for all our legal fees. Plus, they tried to appraise our property back in March and they lowballed it. Now I know how it feels to be <laughs> on the other side of, of getting lowballed. But they lowballed us. And since they appraised it on March, legally speaking as well, the price we're negotiating on is March. So even though we're negotiating it now in August, they still have to pay us March price because that's when they last appraised it. Right. So, yeah. man, like it's so good that we had a lawyer on our side. I think we were pretty bummed to initially to be expropriated just because it's a it's a solid like asset. I think it's like five bedrooms on the main floor, three or four bedrooms upstairs, like nine bed student rental. like couple minutes walk to the University of Windsor. It was a perfect property to like hold for the long term. But in hindsight, like shit, like if we could sell it for top dollar and, and with no like realtor commissions and stuff like that, we're all walking out of it with like a decent chunk of cash. I think it's going to be pretty dope, man. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the big thing. We're not paying any realtor fees. We're negotiating our penalties that we'll be paying to, I guess it was RBC who owned it. The penalties we'll be paying. We're negotiating that to be covered, our legal fees to be covered. It just goes to show like the lesson learned here is, is that like, even though you think you know everything, it's always good to loop a lawyer in because like, realistically speaking, there are things that we're not going to know, right? We didn't yeah. study expropriation. So definitely happy that we did loop a lawyer in. And it's the same thing in the off market world as well. Sellers who generally loop their lawyer in early in the process negotiate better than sellers who feel like they can negotiate better themselves and not have to spend money on a lawyer and go through the process. Right. And being on the other side of things, uh, we thought that as well, we're investors. We've negotiated before. Like we don't need no damn lawyer, right? Like we know exactly what we're doing. And then when we loop one in, it's like, Oh shit. Yeah. We have saved ourselves probably at least six figures plus because we were thinking of the value in August, May, June, right? Whereas now we're thinking of values in March, February, January. So that's going on. That's going on on our end of things. Other than that, uh, enjoying the summer. Um, You want to give some updates on on kind of what you're seeing either on the mortgage side or from other investors, Mayu? Yeah. So so I just got a a notice from Scotia that my new mortgage payment on my primary residence is going up to like 35 something a month, which is honestly ridiculous. When I bought the house back in, I think, February or something like that, whenever we did the mortgage stocks, initial payments was supposed to be like 26, 27, somewhere in that ballpark. So like, it's a sizable increase. And don't get me wrong. Like, I think we're fine. Like, I'm not like too, too concerned, but it's just the fact that like, there's a lot of people that I think were over levered early on in the process, right? Like, like even take it back like a year ago and everyone's stretching their borrowing limits. And I think for them, there's definitely got to be like some blood in the water. Like if, if I'm feeling the effect of it, I'm pretty sure a lot of people are. I think a lot of people were on static rate mortgages, which are probably kind of starting to see 
some impacts and the bank's calling them and they might be locking in fix, et cetera. But even if you're locking in a fix, you're, you're now kind of going to a pretty high kind of new payment, right? Cause if you just weren't feeling the increases little by little, the jump that you might feel is pretty good. I know Austin, you, you've been getting kind of a pretty favorable terms from RBC. So I'm curious to see what the banks ultimately will do with all these kind of mortgages hitting trigger rates. Ultimately the banks don't want people to default either. Right. So it'll just be kind of interesting to see for sure on that side. But the interesting part as well, like housing, housing prices just haven't fallen enough, I think, to fully reflect the increase in interest rates that we're having. Right. So I've been looking in Scarborough pretty aggressively. Scarborough now is looking at a, a decrease in supply month over month. I think uh, a lot of delistings that's happening as well. A lot of people are buying up what's left on the market at kind of prices that it's not bad, but it's not really like a, a one-to-one reflection with the interest rate hikes that's happening. And I think this is a part that not too many investors talk about. It. I'm surprised not too many realtors have started pushing this agenda. It's just ultimately like rent prices have skyrocketed. Things that I was renting out for like 2000 in Scarborough or in GTA now can potentially go 27, $2,800 ish a month, right? Um, so the rent increases now means that we have a new kind of ceiling that we can pay on, on these properties. So I'm trying to figure it out now. I'm starting to find properties where, I mean, it's Scarborough, right? So it's not like you're in a cash flow. That's just the reality of it. You're probably going to have some illegal units, right? Also, I guess just not really talking about that, right? But this is kind of the reality of the landscape there. So it's interesting. I, I'm seeing some properties sell on market that are like turnkey that while they won't cash flow, they'll kind of cover costs, cover your mortgage insurance and property taxes, just kind of the bare minimum. Um, so that's what we're currently seeing. I do think, you know, you got to transcribe to to one train of thought or the other, right? Either, you know, we are bouncing back, supply is starting to shorten down and, and the real estate market will recover or it's kind of a dead cat bounce or whatever they call that thing. I don't even know what the official term is, right? Where it, it's a temporary period where the prices start to move up, buyer sentiment starts to improve. And then we it just might be all false pretext and we might just bounce back down, right? So, so what I would say is, is that I guess the judgment of increasing rents versus... Um, the increased rents justifying a higher price. That's it. Really depends on what property you're looking at, uh, how much rents have increased in that particular property you're looking at, and how much interest rates have increased. Because in a lot of scenarios, the interest rate or the mortgage payment has increased more significant than the magnitude of the rent increases in certain. I don't know. I guess in certain cities. I don't know about the case of Toronto. Maybe Toronto is like skyrocketing. No, you're right. But I think part of what makes it complicated is you're seeing housing prices come down, right? It's it's not coming down enough to reflect how much interest rates have gone up, right? Like it That's should come down more. Well, right. Because like how much has asset values, I would say, increased because of all of this additional injection of money that has come out of nowhere, right? Like it can't, it's not that it can't, um, but is it accurate to reflect it against 2019 prices where 2019 had significantly less money supply rotate. Like, I guess there's a lot of things that impact this. So it's, it's hard to really say what is reasonable and what's not. One thing to know is that RBC, they published their thoughts on the market. And now it's not necessarily a bullish stance in the short term, but they do have a bullish stance in the long term. And it comes down to the fundamentals of Canada is continuing to let more immigrants then housing is able to be developed, right? So they still see the fundamentals of upward pricing over the long term. And who knows what the long term definition is. One last thing I want to mention is, is that so I like to follow a ton of realtors, investors, uh, economists on Twitter and kind of read their thoughts, right? Like in a few words that they put together. You're one of the few people on Twitter. Keep it up. Yeah, <laughs> I don't actively use it. I uh, I just stalk people on it. But uh, the general consensus right now from a lot of realtors in Toronto specifically, because I follow a lot of Toronto realtors, is, is that over the past week or so, they've seen demand start creeping back in. And in Vancouver, likewise, they're starting to see demand back in. However, that being said, this does not indicate a trend, but it's just an observation of what's happening at the moment. Right. So interesting to note that. And uh, one last thing is in Toronto, the median house price actually dropped back to pre-pandemic levels to early 2020. So that means if there's any other decline in Toronto, that would bring us back down to 2019 prices, right? So just median prices, that is uh, just an interesting find. Anyways, I know people like to hear us ramble on, but we got to jump to the podcast one point or another. Today's episode, we have Calvert Mortgages. We have Jesse and Garrett. You probably heard them on our podcast a bit earlier. We take a sneak peek behind the world of mixed, understanding how they're funded, form, and grown. By the way, this episode's not sponsored by anyone, and we talk about it in the more general sense. So if you guys are interested in the business world of mixed, 
or if you're a private lender and want to understand the due diligence of risk of private lending, we get into all of that in today's episode. Make sure to tune in. Definitely super interesting one. Hello, everyone. We are joined with our very special guests, Garrett and Jesse from Calvert Mortgages. Welcome back, gentlemen. How are you doing? Yeah, doing really good. Thanks for having us back. For sure. So I think we had both of you guys on on the podcast, maybe like 20, 30 episodes ago. It's been quite some time, probably a year or so. For anyone that might have just started listening to podcasts recently or might have missed that episode, do you guys just want to quickly introduce yourselves, introduce Calvert and even what you guys do? So my name is Garrett Labar. I've been with Calvert Home Mortgage for about four years now. I'm one of three senior underwriters. And I'm also responsible for raising money for Calvert as well. Awesome. Jesse Bobrowski, Vice President of Business Development. I've been with the firm for seven years now. I get the pleasure of uh, getting to work with the underwriters as well as our staff who raise capital and really help set strategy, provide some coaching, mentoring ideas, and find new opportunities. Calvert Home Mortgage, just so your audience knows, is a mortgage investment corporation based out of Alberta, although we lend throughout Alberta and Ontario. And we specialize, which is one of the main reasons why we enjoy working with you guys so much, is we specialize in working with real estate investors. So our main product and the type of capital we most enjoy lending out is to people that are buy, renovate, sell, or buy, renovate, rent, and refinance. So burn and flip clients. We have a product that is catered to those real estate investors. We have it established where the real estate investors can get in really low down payment. And we also have a lower price if they want to put more down. So really over the years, we've developed a product and a business to support real estate investors who are in and out of residential properties quickly. Awesome. So I think that's a good transition into, you know, I guess just talking about why we have you guys here. I think as real estate investors, there's obviously the flip model, there's a bird model. There's this huge segment of real estate, which is just like private lending, right? And whether you're using private lending as a borrower, whether you're lending out directly or you're lending through a MIC, all kind of different strategies that I think everyone should kind of know about. And it's something that myself and Austin have just selfishly been interested in. So great opportunity to just have you guys on and understand the business model a little bit more as well. But for anyone that doesn't know, and I know you kind of quickly touched on this, but what is a MIC as, as a private lender? A MIC is a mortgage investment corporation, which is essentially a corporation established through the CRA. And what it is, is the CRA mandates it to lend into mortgages in Canada, of which 50% of those must be residential. And the corporation is set up essentially as a flow through. So we don't pay corporate taxes. All of our profits every year go through to our shareholders who then pay interest income on our profits. So we don't have any retained earnings. So if we earn $20 million this year, above and beyond our expenses, that $20 million goes out to our shareholders who then get a T5 and pay interest income on that. And our corporation does not pay any tax. So that's what a MIC is. And it's quite different than what a true private lender is where they don't have that type of structure. And through that, Mortgage Investment Corporation, we're made up of shareholders who own, we call it our equity. And with that equity, they're given the rights to our net proceeds at the end of every year. So interesting income normally in a corp is taxed at like, it's similar to real estate income, right? Where it's taxed at like about like 50% or something like that. But yeah, it's, it's taxed at your highest marginal tax rate. So that's a real deterrent to some investors. Although a lot of our shareholders will hold the units in their RRSPs and TFSAs mm. to avoid that tax burden. Some will hold it in hold corps and, and other vehicles, but because it's taxed as interest income, it acts a lot differently than your investment in a typical stock on, on the TSX or the S&P or whatever. When you talk about raising capital from investors, what does that exactly entail? Does that mean that you're selling equity shares of the company? Would you be able to elaborate on that a bit more? Or are they, they're not lending you the money, right? The way that Calvert accepts money is twofold from investors. We accept money in them buying preferred shares. So in those instances, they would be given a preferred share of the company. That preferred share is based off of our 
net asset value divided by shareholders. Usually it hovers for us, it hovers around $103 per share. Our investors shouldn't make an exceptional amount of money or lose an exceptional amount of money based off of our share price because our share price, 99.9% of it is based off of the capital we have lent out. And that's valued at a dollar per dollar. The reason the share price will change is when we have a loss, the share price will go down. And when we have a gain, and the only way we have a gain is when we establish a loss and then sell the property for more than it's worth in foreclosure, we see a gain. So that will have our share price fluctuating, but we haven't seen our share price fluctuate more than 1% in a given year for over 10 years. So that's one way that they can own us. And that is by having a preferred share. So that would be considered an equity investor in our fund. And then we do have a debenture product now. So we refer to it as our capital stack. So the way that our capital stack looks, uh, I'm going to use round numbers. Today, we have $300 million out in the market. Of that, $130 million is bank debt at prime plus like less than 1%. Then we have $20 million in a corporate debenture. So this is where investors actually lend to us. And we've set that up at a rate that we believe is less than what we'll return on our equity. And it's fixed and it's for a specific amount of time. So those people are actually lending us the money. And then we have our preferred shares in which they're earning money based off of the performance of our fund. So when you look at the capital stack, if everything were to go nuclear and we would suffer losses and have to liquidate, the bank would be first at the trough for the 300 mil. The debenture holders would be second. And then the preferred shareholders would be third. So that's the way that our capital structure works. A lot of mix don't even have bank debt. Bank debt is really difficult to get. You need a long history, but you need really rigorous reporting. And that takes a lot of investment in systems, in your finance and accounting department, in order to go to the bank, say, hey, here's our fund, give us leverage on it. And then a lot also don't have ventures. Most just sit there and have their preferred shareholders and that's it. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. So I wasn't aware. So banks actually loan out to mix as well at, I guess, lower rate than what you guys will generate loans from to investors. Is that normal? Do banks give a lot of pushback on that? Because they generally don't loan directly to those clients themselves, right? So I guess it's not direct competition, but I thought they would want to avoid that sort of segment of clients. So they're kind of exposing themselves into that. Yeah, it's interesting that banks lending to Mix. So maybe we'll step back for a minute first. Mix, as let's call them a formal business, have really taken off over the last 20 years. The asset size that Mix managed today, some numbers, I think CMHC had a report that pegs it at 10 times the size it was 20 years ago. So as the mortgage investment corporation industry grows, the banks have taken a look and said, hey, we have a real opportunity to lend money out at profitable for them. And in a way where, yes, we're taking business that they don't want, but they're still able to kind of get a piece of it. So it's becoming more and more popular. So for instance, our latest review of our bank debt, we got an approval for 200 million and it consists of a syndication of four Canadian financial institutions and likely as we continue to grow within our growth strategy, we're going to bring more banks into that syndicate and they're very interested in the business. So as long as you have a good management team with good reporting and a solid financial track record, in today's market, you can go and secure bank debt. And so for instance, what what we're doing there is it's really benefiting our shareholders because right now we're paying the bank under 5%. Our average rate to our borrowers is just above 10. So that margin that we're making all benefits the shareholder. Mm -hmm. And what we love about it, it allows us to benefit the shareholder, but also not be so reliant on shareholders as well. So raising $200 million in one tranche, rather than trying to go get $200 million from 200 families is a lot easier to work with. Yeah. I kind of get what you were saying as well, where it appears like, okay, so like Calvert, if you, you guys have really good product, which is 20K down. So in theory, people could be going up to, I don't know, call it like 95%, like loan to value or something like that, which 98 in some instances. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Which the banks have historically stayed away from. But then when you look at 
how you guys are composed where you have 130 million in bank debt on a total loan portfolio of 300 from the bank's perspective, you can maybe make an argument. I might be wrong here that really they're only like 50% loan to value on your loans, right? Because the equity shareholders have the remainder of the loan, right? Yeah. That's a way that we easily sell the bank in terms of their risk. When they look at risk, what is their risk really? Yeah. And keep in mind when we're lending at that 20 grand down, we always make sure that the client's going to be profitable, that they have the money. Yeah. So our current overall book loan to value today is 59%. And the banks have less than 50% of that. So if you were to mm-hmm. really strip it down, they're at like 20% loan to value on a $300 million mm-hmm. book of predominantly single family houses in major urban markets in Canada. That's a pretty low risk yeah. situation for them. Yeah. Yeah. And they're making a good return on their money. (laughs) (laughs) We might be kind of nerdy about it, but uh, to me, I find it fascinating just kind of how how different players kind of play their risks. Um, Very early on, I think this is like 2018 or or 17 or something like that. Like when I was a complete like newbie in the real estate space, I invested in a mech. So I do have an understanding of how the preferred share works. And at that point, I think they gave me like an 8% like pref share or 7% or something like that a long time ago. So I don't really remember, but I did through Olympia, through my RSB into a mix, which is basically, it sounds like what you guys are doing, but I guess for me, it was just a personal connection. Like I knew the guy that had the mic, right? So I'm curious, like, A, how do you guys go about raising capital from other investors? How do investors like decide which mic to invest in? Because subsequent to that, I've now discovered there's a lot of different mix out there, right? So how do investors like go about evaluating which mix are, are good and bad and so on? Those are great questions. So we only accept money from accredited investors. Being accredited means making $200,000 a year as an individual, $300,000 as a household, or having uh, over a million dollars in net financial assets. So we're seeking people who have substantial amount of money, have some investment knowledge, and are looking to get into our space. We're also looking for funds out there that are willing to partner with us and either do the debenture side or the equity side. And in regards to looking at mix and how to justify one or another, for us, it's pretty simple because we have one financial statement. We're one company, we're one fund, whereas a lot of different mix will be multiple funds, multiple different corporations that are involved in the fund, and they pay out management fees and different things. So they have intricacies that are different from ours. Whereas we'll send you our financials, you can review everything that we have going in and going out, and it's pretty simple. But I think it's important to look into how much is devoted towards residential mortgages, how much they have in first and second mortgages, what's their current average loan to value, those types of things. So there's quite a few different things that you can look into, but our financial state, all of that information, and it's important to get that from every mic that you deal with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And kind of touching on on the other side, as an investor, when I'm looking to invest in something, I want to understand the risk element of it. Would you be able to touch on some of the risks of investing in mix, and if there's any way to kind of mitigate that risk factor? Yeah, Jesse, did you want to add anything first before that? Yeah, I'll just kind of summarize some stuff there with Garrett said. So, so Garrett explained how we go see capital. Um, it's from those higher net worth individuals, families, and funds. And we have a very high bar in terms of how we accept capital. There are a lot of other mix out there who operate using an offering memorandum and they go accept capital from, I'll call it the more retail investor. So they don't have the same net worth requirement and they'll have a lot more shareholders. Whereas us, of our $170 million in investor money, that's made up of 300 individual shareholders. Whereas mix the same size of us using an OM will have three, four, five times that many investors. So for your listeners, if you're not accredited, that doesn't mean you can't invest in mix. It just means that we Calvert uh, won't be able to accommodate the investment. And then in due diligence, Garrett hit on a number of good things. Like it's almost like the due diligence you want to do for a mix is the same you want to do when you're investing in real estate. Where are they lending their money? What is their loan to value? What is their investment thesis? Like if it's lending on development land, the loan to value should be a lot lower than if it's lending on single family houses. Also, the management experience should be really robust in development land. And then finally, 
management experience as a whole. So what we're seeing today is we just talked about this prior to going into this discussion, the Ontario market, which is seeing a correction for the first time in 20 years. Although I guess there was a bit of a correction in Toronto in what was it? 18. Yeah. But anyhow, so the first real correction in 20 years, you could have had Mick managers running their business for 10, 15, five years with really great results. Although in some instances, an upward market can mitigate your errors. So you want to look at how have you managed through a correction before? What did you do? You'll also want to look at what is their loss ratios. So how often are they losing money? What amount of their book is currently in foreclosure or currently what the banks love to look at is more than 30 days in arrears. Those are things you'll want to review. I think you made a really good point there. And something I'll just touch on is the history of the company. Like Calvert's been in business for over 45 years. And you've heard all the the kind of horror stories of mix and different investments that have gone wrong. It's super important to look into, like Jesse said, the history of a company and see if they've gone through a downturn before and how they manage that. You can look at their returns, their loss ratios, all of that, how many they have in foreclosure. Like we provide that in an instance, we've kind of created, you can either look at our financials or we have it in a deck now that we can send you an investor brochure. So all important stuff to review and look at. Sorry, before I forget, there's one more additional really good thing are what are the third party checks and balances? So do they have an independent board of directors who's looking at governance and strategy? Who are they using as their auditor? Hopefully it's a national where they have experience auditing financial institutions. For us, we love that we have bank money because they're looking as a third party at our underwriting risk. So those checks and balances are important. Is there anybody really sophisticated with a non-vested interest rolling up their sleeves and looking into the company and pointing out potential risks? Yeah. And on top of those, the bank, we have two funds that have invested in us and did a a lot of due diligence to be able to do that. So important to know. Yeah. So I think you guys did a good job kind of outlining what investors look for. And I think this was Austin's question as well that he was asking is kind of, um, you know, what's the risk then investing in the mix? Yeah. So, so we talked about some of the risk in terms of the fundamentals of the fund and management team. The biggest risk from at least investing in Calvert's perspective is the lack of liquidity. So we only permit our investors to redeem their shares once a year. So you're locked in with us on an annual basis. And that's the same for most fund managers. There'll be a lock-in period. Also, what we've set up to mitigate the risk of a run on our fund is we will do a maximum redemption return of 10% of the entire fund per year. So let's say the world's on fire and everybody wants out. We can't get everybody out because then the fund will collapse on itself. So we've said we will do a maximum of 10% of the entire fund and then board discretion thereafter. So if the business has the ability to pay out more redemptions, we will. So that's something that the investor really has to look at. Also, the lack of disclosure. Mixer privately held companies, except for there are four publicly traded mortgage investments corporations where the liquidity component and the disclosure component isn't a risk because you can trade it on the TSX. So lack of disclosure. What are the financial statement requirements? How often are they giving them to you? Of course, there's always going to be a market risk, right? We're lending on real estate. And if the market turns in a big way quick, that's where Calvert can see risks. You know, for instance, in 2008, during the financial crisis, eight, nine, and 10, basically, real estate values dropped significantly. People had a real hard time paying their mortgages because there was big unemployment. And our defaults went way up while values were coming down. So we were suffering some losses during those periods. Our goal as a fund is to firstly preserve capital. So we did a good job at that, but our returns went from, you know, an average of 11% down to four or 5% for those years. Some funds went out of business. Some funds lost the principal for the investors. So 
there is that market risk too. So you got to keep in mind that you're essentially giving a company your investment dollars for them to lend on real estate. And if the borrower defaults, there's a risk. Mm -hmm. If there's not enough money in the property to cover that default, the fund is going to lose money. And in turn, either your rates are going to suffer. Hopefully that's the only thing that happens, or you're going to lose real money if the fund suffers significant amount enough losses, where basically where you're losing more money than the fund's making, then your principal is going to be eroded. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The the market risk is a big one for sure. So that goes back to loan to value and reviewing the, the mix loan to value, average loan to value in the book. If you see this big downturn and their average loan to value is at 85% in all in the GTA, you're going to be pretty concerned at this time. But like there's other external factors too that we need to consider when looking at a MIC is political, environmental, even like pandemic, making sure that you have good management at the company to take care of that. When the pandemic hit, we didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't think real estate was going to go up. That's for sure. We were anticipating a 10% drop. So we pretty much stopped the lending altogether above 70% loan to value. So we could make sure that we're comfortable where we're at. So we were kind of cherry picking really good deals and not doing much lending to see what happened. So not being too aggressive and have the right management to take care of any external factors that might happen. And then another one as well is just competition. There's a competition risk, ensuring that we have a product that offers something that no one else in the market does. There's a lot of other mix that we know of that are competing for those low loan to value, urban center deals, and they're competing and lowering their interest rates more and more to get those deals while that's impacting the end return to the shareholders. So just other things to consider when looking at the mix. Mm -hmm. For sure. So I I think that's a good entryway to to my next question. And I've heard a couple of different numbers floating around just from you guys talking because you've got your preferred shareholders. What is an average return that preferred shareholders basically get? Do you guarantee them anything? And then the second question that I had is preferred shareholders technically are not the shareholders, right? Like you must have like equity shareholders, no? In a mech? So we don't guarantee any returns. And we always state that this is a high risk investment. So there's no guaranteeing anything. We return what we return. So what happens is our MIC, we take in all our revenues, our fees, our interest that is paid out, all our revenues, and we pay out our expenses. So that would be our salary, our overhead, rent, bonuses, all that type of stuff. And the rest goes out to our investors. And last year, we returned 12.09 in our investors. That was a pretty big year for us. But over the last 10 years, over the last five years, we've stuck around the 10%. But what we like to tell our investors is we shoot for between 8 and 10%. That's kind of like what we want to see. But all of our employees and management and everything are investors. Management actually owns 9% of our fund. So we'd all love to see that rate of return be over 10%. We're striving for that. But we want to set expectations between that 8 and 10%. There was a question for Jesse on the equity holding structure. Yeah. Yeah. So for our fund, you're right. The PREF shares would not give those individuals value above and beyond net asset value in our return. So in the unlikely event where we sold the fund, the PREF shareholders would simply just get paid out their net asset value and whatever the return was. And then any amount above and beyond the value of the fund that it sold for would go to the voting shareholders. And the voting shareholders are essentially the founding family, which are the Kellers, myself and and two other individuals. So if we were to sell the fund and liquidate, the shareholders would get paid out NAV and anything above net asset value would go to the voting shareholders. It's not a plan of ours. One day when, when we're a $10 billion fund pushing out 10% 10% returns, maybe Berkshire Hathaway comes knocking and gives us an offer we can't refuse. But uh, for now, our goal is just to continue to support real estate investors and our shareholders through growing our fund and lending on, on, on smart mortgages. And in turn, us as, like Garrett said, us as a management team, growing our wealth through providing a really good rate adjusted return and just compounding that because it's amazing what 
a 9% compounding interest can do to your TFSAs, RSPs, and, and other investment vehicles. Is there a lot of like amalgamations and like acquisitions and stuff like that in the mix space? Cause it is, it is pretty fragmented, meaning like you guys are a big mix, right? But there's also a lot of like small, like not mom and pop, but like smaller, like mix that kind of exists, especially within GTA where a lot of different like families have them. So is there a lot of like acquisitions and is there value in acquiring other mix or is that not a, a growth strategy that's, that's common? We've looked into acquisitions in the past and haven't been successful yet. So in general, there's been fairly low mergers and acquisition activity in the mix space. Although I think with a down market, valuations will change. And also the outlook of some of the businesses will change and M&A activity may pick up because opportunities will be there. Because what we've seen before when looking at an acquisition, okay, essentially we're buying a book of performing mortgages. Great. There's value to that. And then you're buying shareholders. Those shareholders may or may not stay. Uh Essentially goodwill with the shareholders. Then you're buying goodwill with usually mortgage brokers placed alone. Those mortgage brokers are fickle. They'll just go to whoever's offering the best rate, the best compensation, whatever it may be. So we've been blessed as a MIC where we've been really good at attracting new loans, right? Like you got all-stars like Garrett who are underwriting, who are working on business development and growing our opportunities. So we don't place a lot of value on loan acquisition. So in turn, we're not willing to pay the multiple that some of these mix were asking. So M&A activity has been low to date. Although as the market moves, I think opportunities will be there. So let's see what happens over the next two years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Just looking at businesses myself, I haven't seen multiples drop off tremendously yet. A lot of these sellers are not necessarily motivated because they've owned the business for a very long time. But, uh, Just wanted to go back into the conversation about risk that you were mentioning earlier, um, lack of uh, liquidity. To be honest, if you're private lending, it's sort of the same case, right? You're in that sort of like, if you're lending your money out for a year, you're tied in for a year. So if you're planning on private lending, I wouldn't think that's anything necessarily different from like lending individually versus investing in a mix because you're tied in nonetheless. But um, one thing that you guys are mentioning in, in terms of reducing risk is taking a look at like, different mixes, loss ratios, any loans and areas like that, that need collection. How do you determine what is industry standard or what? Because ultimately, when you look at different ones, you need to have something to benchmark it against. Is there like any sort of benchmark of loss ratios that we should be looking at? Yeah. So what's great is before there was no information available to benchmark other than, you know, call up 10 mix, do your own research. Now, CMHC is including a report every quarter on what the outstanding MIC dollar amount is, what um, arrears ratios and loss ratios are for these MICs. So right now, I'm probably not going to get this number perfect, but loss ratio, I think, is around 1.5%. So for every $100 in mix lending out, they're losing $1.5. Our historical loss ratio is 037 So a lot lower than that standard. Um, And then in terms of, of, uh, we look at foreclosure ratio. Uh, Historically, we've been around 5% of our deals go into foreclosure. Uh, Right now it's at less than one just because the market's been so good. And that again is low, but you can actually finally benchmark it because of the research that CMHC is doing. Now, keep in mind, not all mix report on that. But something is better than nothing. And, and um, Austin, back to your point on private lending, Garrett and I both used to lend our own money out privately. We used to work for a mortgage syndicator. And in my view, mix are more liquid than private because in a private, you're stuck with that loan until it pays out. Where at least in a mic, you can exit depending on what their liquidity eligibility is. And also you're a lot more diversified in a mech, right? Like we hold 900 mortgages. Whereas if I was to put half a billion bucks into one mortgage, all my money is sitting on that mortgage. So if they default and I lose money, I'm fully exposed there. So a couple big differences are the liquidity as well as the um, diversification, but also keep in mind a problem that I had when I was privately lending my money, I would say, yeah, awesome. I did a 12% return this year. 
but I only had 80% of my money out. So mm-hmm. I wanted, if I had, uh, let's say I had a million dollars to get out and only 800 was working at any given time, that really brings down my net return. So some things to think about as a private versus Mick lending. It's a very good point. And then you also got to think about the hands-on time that you spend with those private mortgages. Like if you are in one, the amount of time that you're going to need to spend looking at the deal, seeing what's going on, you'll be a lot more worried if you're in one than 900 that we have and we do all the management for you. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas if you're doing it on your own, and it goes into foreclosure if you have issues if you're not going through a syndicated company then you're likely doing all the all the work yourself to to handle the lawyers to get payments and call the client it's a lot of work and like jesse said maybe not all your money is in that either and you're earning that 12 percent when you could just put it with a mic that's that's handling all this for you doing the arrears doing all the work on the back end so mm-hmm. it can be a great way we both did it. So, but, uh, very different, very different mm-hmm. depending on what you're looking for. Yeah. It sounds like there's a time and a place. I think some investors, it probably makes more sense for sure versus maybe some others that need the money coming back. Because I think part of it is also, you might only be deploying 80% of your capital and that 80% of your capital might only be deployed for like eight months of, out of 12. Right. And so then really, what, what are you really generating? Right. Kind of carries off of what we were chatting about, uh, last on, uh, loss ratios. Obviously, a loss ratio is really good when you compare it against um, what CMHC has published at 1.5%. You guys said what, like 0.37? Yeah, 0.37. A lot of that would go into underwriting deals. So what is it that you do to underwrite these deals differently? Or what's kind of that process like if an uh, investor wants to get a loan from uh, Calvert? How do you go about uh, underwriting it? Yeah, really good question should have stated this before, but each MIC is so different in what they do and the products that they offer. Ours is is becoming more and more standard and unique in that we just focus on the real estate investor side. So we love having a personal relationship with our clients as well. Like I've done quite a bit with Mayu as well. And um, it's, it's always the same each time. It's very consistent. We ask for personal information up front, a few documents, but then we really dig into the property. Like we want to see pictures of the property. We want to understand what they're going to do to the property because most of our clients are doing renovations. And then we have our internal appraisers who are doing those values internally for us and with an unbiased opinion of what they think the value is on an as complete basis. So really get diving into the property details and then having a conversation with the client directly we always want to make sure that we have a quick 10, 30, sometimes longer, like it depends on the scenario, but we have a quick conversation with the client just to make sure they understand us. We understand them and their project and what their plans are. First off, how they're going to renovate the property, if they're doing it themselves or if someone is doing it for them, have they vetted them? And then how long it's going to take, are they either going to sell it or refinance? What have they thought about? So we're big on our exit strategies. And that's why this flip and burr financing that we do is, is really unique. Our book turns over very quickly. Our average mortgage is on our books for 4.5 months. So we're very unique in that sense compared to other mix that might be looking for long-term stuff. We like the short-term stuff. There's less risk when it comes to economic turndowns. And we can handle that. And our clients can say, hey, I got this property, renovated it quick. The market's turning down. I got to sell it now. And they do that pretty quick as long as they stay to their plans. So we do a lot of due diligence on our side for these deals. but um, And we work with great brokers like Mayu as well. <laughs> Thanks. Man. I appreciate the shout out there. But so my next question, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think it does come down to a lot of like really just good underwriting at the end of the day as well, right? Um, But my next question is, it goes back to this uh, kind of fragmented MIC industry with a lot of smaller players. I'm wondering, like, like what's really the process? And I know you guys have been around for a long time, so so I'm sure the process has changed, but I'm also sure you guys probably know the process now as well. What's the process to go about setting up and creating a MIC? Like, what's the requirements? Can anyone just 
turn around the corner and decide, hey, I've got a corp, now it's a mic, right? Uh, like what's really the process that, that governs and require and requirements for this? Process is very rigorous. Um, so you're going to be regulated by a few different regulators. The most important is, is CRA and staying on side within their rules. The next is your securities commission. So wherever you're set up, a MIC is an exempt market product. So you need to be structured around the security commission structure. And you're going to need to have an offering memorandum or a relationship disclosure document, robust policies and procedures around that, and various other legal documents to accept money from investors. That came into place back in 2010. That's probably the biggest cost barrier to entry. Like to set that up now and get your exempt market dealer license and become in Alberta, we need to be a fund manager as well as, or a fund manager and a discretionary fund manager. That's about a quarter million dollar upfront costs. Then you're going to need to be producing audited financial statements. There's a cost for that. You're going to be needing to produce to the securities commissions, various reporting to them. Then on the real estate side, depending on how you're structured. So my, we are licensed by the real estate council of Alberta, as well as the one in Ontario. Uh, remind me who, who regulates us in Ontario from the mortgage broker side, FISRA. FISRA. Uh, so we need to make sure that we're adhering to their requirements. Again, big legal costs to get structured properly, to be paying our brokers properly. So a lot of upfront costs and work as it relates to ensuring you're sufficiently hitting the regulator's requirements. Then you need to have your shareholders. I think the minimum mix shareholder amount, I might be wrong because I haven't looked at this in years, is you need 50 shareholders to start. None can own more than, sorry, for, for the purpose of investing your RSPs or TFSAs, you can't own more than 10%. That's voting or preferred shares as one individual. So Mayo and Austin were to start a MIC and you guys wanted to invest your RSPs and TFSAs, you couldn't own more than 10% of the funds. So you'd have to diversify your shareholdership. So those are probably the biggest costs. So it's quite a big barrier to entry. And when I last did an analysis on what is the minimum amount you should be administering to be a MIC or to, to make it worthwhile to be a MIC. And again, that was probably five years ago. It was about $10 million for it to make sense. Mm. So unless you're a $10 million fund made up of 50 shareholders, it's probably not worth the exercise to become that. There's other ways to do it. The costs have gone up. So that minimum number to be profitable has probably gone up as well. Cool. Very interesting. All right, guys. So I think it was a great crash course on mix, you know, all about them, even from an investing perspective, even from like a business perspective, how they really run. Definitely think there's a lot of value for our guests in today's episode. So usually at this point in the podcast, we like to ask our guests uh, two questions. So the first one is, where do you see, usually it's yourselves, but where do you see the business in five years from now? That's, that's a pretty easy one for us because <laughs> we, we just did a, a sprint on where we think we're going to be and we're, we're hoping to be a billion dollar fund in in five years. So yeah, that was perfect timing. That's where we see ourselves. <laughs> perfect. And the second question is, what's a major risk that you see for newer investors in today's market? For newer investors in today's market, I would say it's the risk of fear. And before six months ago, it was the opposite. It was the risk of exuberance. So just thinking that the market always goes up and not doing your due diligence, not going through the rigor of, of properly analyzing your deal and being a speculator rather than an investor. Today, the risk is fear. The market is correcting. Prices are going down. As Warren Buffett said, when others are greedy, be fearful. When others are fearful, be greedy. Now is the time to look at opportunities. There are opportunities out there if you're looking. Will the market continue to go down? likely. But if you buy at the right price, and today I see those prices being out there, you could be very successful. So I think the biggest risk is your psychology, fear. I would 100% agree. I think the media has put a lot of doom and gloom out there. So 
I think there's still opportunities. As Jesse said, if you're buying right, we still see a lot of people who can get some really discounted properties. And these days, people are, the regular market is looking for those turnkey properties. So if you can buy something cheap and you can do the right renovations for the market, I think there's a huge opportunity there. So I would 100% agree. Fear is uh, is something that uh, will take over a lot of people. But if you're still looking, there's still profits to be had. Yep. I love that answer. Absolutely true. We're talking about this offline a bit earlier, but uh, there's some deals in Toronto that I'm looking at that are selling at 2019 prices. Now it might be one in every like 50 sales or so, but those opportunities are out there if you're looking. Jesse, Garrett, really appreciate you coming on, breaking down the 101 on Mix. This was a super valuable and informational episode. I definitely learned a ton of things I didn't know before. And I'm sure Mayu and our audience has as well. If people want to connect with you guys, learn more about Calvert Mortgages, potentially invest with you or get a loan from you, how can they do so? We have an awesome website that has a lot of great information. So just Google Calvert Home Mortgage. It's chmic.ca. Unfortunately for investors, it's limited. We're the only Mick I know of that doesn't have any promotional investor material on their website. We're very closely held. And we've been successful by really kicking ass for our network of investors. So through that, you can find Garrett or my information. It's just our first names at chmic.ca. So you can reach out to us by email, by website. We have an awesome Instagram handle at Calvert Home Mortgage, which with it, what we love to do is just educate. So educating mostly the real estate investors. So people that are flipping, what is the market doing? What are we seeing? Tips and tricks, all that stuff. So please follow us on that. You could always DM our Insta and ask for Garrett or I to talk about uh, investing as well. So email, website, Insta. I think those are the best places to get a hold of us. Awesome. Tons of options. All of it's going to be down in the show notes below. Before we wrap up, guys, if you enjoyed this episode, make sure to like, subscribe, comment on it, share with a friend, do whatever you can to support this podcast. It helps bring great guests like Garrett and Jesse out. And until next time, everyone, invest smarter and live better. Take care, all.